take a Sunday to do it. Um, we used to do that when I was doing youth ministry. I would do it about once a quarter. They would submit questions, and, and we would just answer them. Um, on Wednesday nights, we have a fun time to be able at the end to, we, we kind of go off topic a little bit and have discussions, and that's good. And on Sunday mornings, the, just the format that we have is not able to do that. But, uh, but yeah, I have five questions today that were submitted or else asked face-to-face, and that I thought we would take a little bit of time and explore together. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, next week we start a new ser- a series called The Sabotage of Sin. And it's based off of this inner f- struggle that Paul had, where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And he has this struggle. And so we're going to look at how sin's whole purpose was to sabotage humanity and how that sabotage on humanity affects us physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And so we'll spend four weeks looking at that, and, and we have a few other fun things coming up this summer. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. God, I'm so thankful for your grace, your mercy. Uh, God, that you so freely place upon us. This morning, God, as we just kind of dig into some questions that, that some of us have had, God, maybe some questions that we were just scared to ask or some that we already knew the answer to, but we just want some uh, meat behind it to help us explain it. Lord, help us to grow in these questions. Lord, help us to have a greater understanding of who you are through this. Uh, Lord, I just pray this morning that if anybody's here who's struggling, that maybe they're questioning certain things, that the questions would go beyond this, but Lord, they would begin to question things in their life, and, and ultimately, God, you would come in and provide those answers. And so this morning, we submit our, our lives our, and our service to you, and we ask God that you take over and allow us just to be the participants in your glory. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So the, the question that, we, uh, that I, I, I get a lot of times is the first one I want to talk about. If the Bible is the inspired word of God, then why do we have so many translations? Right? You ever ask that question? We spent a couple of weeks on a Wednesday night talking about why we have translations, what they are. But um, I want to take you through how the Bible came to be the way we have it today and then talk about why we have multiple translations um, But if you've ever walked into a Christian bookstore, the largest section they have is Bibles. And a lot of times you you see three letters on it, and it it makes no sense. You're like, what is an RSV or NIV or ESV? You know, it sounds like code for something. And so I just want to help you understand what those are. And if you're shopping for a Bible, help you understand what Bible you're probably shopping for, okay? So this book right here is the most amazing book that we know of, right? It is 66 books. 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. It was written over 1,600 years by 40 different men over three different continents in three different languages. That's an amazing feat, right? I couldn't get six of us in a room and ask us to write about something and all of us write about a unified message. But even though these men didn't know each other, some of them didn't, even though they didn't even write within the same century of each other, this whole book has this unified message about the redemption of God. And so it's an amazing book that we have. But the Bible and the price that people paid to get it to where it is today, a lot of us don't know. There was a lot of bloodshed so that we could have the freedom to read an English translation of the Bible. And so I want to talk about some of the costs that went with it and and ultimately how um, how we can go through that. And so there was a time in history where literally to possess a Bible and not fall within the religious elite was cause for your life. So there came a point where they said, we have all these writings, some of them good, some of them heretical. People are dying for them. 
we have to come together and figure out what, is, what we're going to conclude is the Holy Word of God. Now understand this, the Holy Word of God is not determined by man, it's determined by God, right? Timothy tells us, or Paul writes to Timothy, this is God-breathed, and it's the inspired Word of God. So that doesn't determine it, but man had to decide what is worth dying for, right? Like, are you willing to die for this book and not this book? If so, why not? And so they begin to ask some very difficult questions. And so we call this the canonization of Scripture, meaning what is the rules involved for a book to be in the Bible? Right? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Or if you ever watch History Channel, you'll hear them talk about books that aren't in the Bible, but they reference them as if they should be, like the book of Thomas, which is a book that our early church fathers said absolutely not doesn't belong in there. And there's reasons for that. There was criteria for things to be in the Bible. And so I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about those. In order for a book to be canonized, there was four questions that was asked about it. Was the, and this is the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament was generally accepted even in the New Testament time, right? If you look, 37 of the 39 books are quoted in the New Testament. And so only two of them don't fall within that, but they were accepted by uh, the apostles, the disciples, even Jesus himself, uh, that these were the books. So there hasn't been much debate over those 39 books, but the 27 that come after that we call the New Testament, there's been much debate about it, okay? And so uh, there were four questions that were asked, and these were the rules for canonization. One is, was the author an apostle or have a close connection with an apostle? The second question they would ask, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Uh, the third question they would ask is, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And if it met all those criteria, then the fourth and final question they would ask is, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? All right, so in order for a book to be in the Bible, it had to meet that criteria. Uh, all four of those, not just one of the four, it had to meet all four of those. And if we were to go through each New Testament book, we could answer yes to every single one of those questions. So in 393 A.D., at the Council of Hippo, and it wasn't a Council of Hippopotamuses, um, it was a joke. It was no, it wasn't. Uh, our Bible was canonized as we know it today. So from 393 A.D., the Protestant Bible, as we know it, was completed by as 66 books. We've made no changes since then. They had another council four years later that would just reaffirm that these books that we have in our Bible are what we consider the canonization, or this is the canon of Scripture. So that's why we have the 66 books. So if we have these inspired books, then why do we need to be able to read it in other languages? So the first handwritten English language Bible, and, and, and you know what's tough is because we speak English and we primarily know people who primarily, that, that, that's their only language, we struggle from time to time to understand that it's not the most dominant language, that it wasn't around from the beginning of time. So the first handwritten English language Bible manuscripts, they were produced in 1380 AD by a man named John Wycliffe. Now that's a very popular name if you're familiar with it, John Wycliffe. He was an Oxford professor, he was a scholar, and he was a theologian. And so with the help of his followers and some other scribes, Wycliffe produced by hand dozens of English language manuscript copies of the scripture. They were translated from Latin, which was the primary language that the Bible was in at that time. The Pope was so infuriated that he did this, get this, 44 years later, after Wycliffe had died, 
they ordered his bones to be dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river. That's how angry they were that he would take this Bible and translate it from Latin to English. Prior to this, if you could not read Latin, you were forced to believe the teachings of someone who could read and interpret it for you. This is what empowered popes throughout history. And if you read early church history, you know that they were not only the powerful ones in the religious world, they were the powerful ones in the secular world. No one became the leader of anywhere unless the pope gave his permission. And so this is what empowered them. Is not only could they be the only ones to read it to you, they were the only ones to interpret it to you, which meant that it was open to their interpretation. And so this is how they did it. And so the church didn't want the common man to have access to scripture and their language because they controlled access, which gave them wealth and power. Um, they sold things like indulgences, which is the forgiveness of sins. Can you believe that? They told people that this was in the Bible, and so they sold this to people who gave their hard-earned money, said, if you pay us for the indulgences, we'll give you forgiveness for your sins. They also forced them to, to buy from them the release of their family from purgatory. And so this is how they controlled everything was through there only being one translation and not many copies of that Bible. So then another man named William Tyndale, you're familiar with that name, Tyndale Publishing is after him. William Tyndale, Tyndale, he went against that and he printed in mass quantities the English New Testament Bible. So the biggest purchaser of the Bible was the king's men. And that was because they actually bought them and, and turned around and destroyed them. And so they would buy up all these New Testament Bibles and a few of them would trickle out of their possession. They would buy them all up and they would burn them and destroy them. And they had even people convinced that what he was doing was heretical. He was changing everything because nobody knew how to read it for themselves. What they didn't know is every time they bought Bibles from William Tyndale, it gave him the power to go print more Bibles. And so what they thought they were doing was bad, they were actually doing something that was really good for him. They were buying Bibles and he was printing more and more Bibles up. Well, in the end, uh, Tyndale was caught. He was betrayed by one of his friends, this Englishman. Um, and he was incarcerated for 500 days before he was strangled and burned at a stake in 1536. So that was the cost of us having the English New Testament. And Tyndale's last words were, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And that prayer was answered three years later in 1539 when King Henry VIII finally allowed and even funded the printing of an English Bible known as the Great Bible. Um, so in, in 1550, what, the Bible that we're probably one of the ones we're most familiar with, uh, there was a church in Geneva, Switzerland. And they were very sympathetic to reformers and those who were trying to escape this tyranny uh, of trying to control everything about their religious life. And so they met in Geneva, uh, along with Miles Coverdale, who many of you probably know him very well. Uh, no, but you know John Fox, who we know as Fox's Book of Martyrs. He wrote that. Uh, Thomas Sampson, William Whittingham, who both were early church fathers. They also came under the protection of the great theologian John Calvin and John Knox. Uh, all these men came together. And they decided they were going to put together a Bible that would educate their families while they continued in exile. So these great theologians who we know them, uh, we may not know that they were instrumental in giving us really our first English Bible. The Geneva Bible, because it was meant to educate people, is the first Bible to add numbers and verses and chapters so that we can reference specific passages. 
And so the Geneva Bible is the first one to do that. Prior to that, it was just one major translation. Of course, when it was written, it was one major letter primarily. And, and so they broke it up for us in the digestible form that we have today. Um, every chapter was also accompanied by extensive marginal notes and references so that, um, so that people could use it as a study Bible. And so it became the first English Bible that not only could I reference for people, but I could also have someone helping me understand what I read that wasn't someone who had some selfish agenda as it was with many of the religious leaders. Now the translation to end all translations, uh, for a while anyhow, uh, was the result of a combined effort of 50 scholars. And what they did is they took into consideration Tyndale's New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, who he, he had helped translate one right after this, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and the Rims New Testament. They took all these Bibles, along with some original other things, and they created this revision of the Bishop's Bible, that's what they called it. And so from 1605 to 1607, they individually began to research the Bible. And from 1607 to 1609, together they began to assemble and put this Bible together. And so in 1610, this Bible went off to print. And in 1611, it was printed. And most of you know that Bible is the King James Bible, right? Because it was created. It was 16 inches tall, and it was made for pulpits. Even so that they actually chained it to the pulpit. How about that? Huh? They, they could, it was chained to the pulpit. You couldn't take it with you. Um, the following year, though, they decided that they were going to make a public-sized King James Version Bible. And so they printed it, and they began to distribute it even to, uh, to people for their own personal copy. One of the greatest ironies of history is that Protestant Christian churches today embrace the King James Bible, which is a wonderful translation, exclusively as the only legitimate English language translation, yet it wasn't even a Protestant translation. Uh, the King James Bible was actually printed um, to compete with the Geneva Bible, which was the Protestant Bible. It was an Anglican Bible. And so throughout the 1600s, as the Puritans and pilgrims fled for the religious persecution and they came from England over to America and started this new nation, they took with them their precious Geneva Bible because they rejected the King's Bible. And so our country was founded by these wonderful Christian men um, who, who came over with this Geneva Bible that was composed of these wonderful scholars. But thankfully, we have the freedom to read any Bible that we want, right? There's nobody going... Uh, I tell you what, if you read that one, we're going to kill you. And literally, people paid with their lives. I thought about that as I was studying this a little bit. Like, man, like, could you willingly give your life up if somebody said, don't you dare read the book of Matthew? Like, man, I, I want to read the book of Matthew, you know? But this is the price that they would pay is they would sneak and read these things. And so thankfully today, what these men sacrificed along throughout history has given us the freedom to read the Bible. And so that brings us to the question of why do we have so many translations of the Bible? Specifically, why do we have so many translations of the English Bible? It's very simple. There's two, tri uh, there's two transitional styles, okay? There is the formal equivalency and the dynamic equivalency, okay? Remember those two things. There's two styles of translations of the Bible that we have. The formal equivalency focuses on a word-for-word -word translation of original manuscripts. The dynamic, trans, uh, which dynamic equivalence translations focuses on a thought-for-thought -thought translation. 
All right, so for instance, if you were to read a Bible, if you were translating in the formal, you would read the original language and you would stay as true to that, even if it wasn't the easiest to read, you would stay as true to those words as you possibly could. If you were to translate the dynamic translation, you would read the thoughts of the writer and then you would translate it thought for thought of that person. I'll give you an example. Formal translation would include the King James Version Bible. The translation I read out of from up here, the English Standard Version, that's a formal translation. And the New American Standard Bible are a few examples of that. These Bibles focus more on word-for-word translation uh, and less so focus on the thought-for-thought. Meaning that there may be a time that you read it and it's a little unclear. That wasn't their intent for it to be this thought where you can go, I know exactly what they're thinking. Their thought, their idea was, I want you to be able to study it word for word, almost as true as it can be to the original text. Now, when we talk about dynamic, that includes the New International Version, the New Living Translation, and the Amplified Bibles. Those concern themselves more with the thought for thought translation. All right, do you have an understanding now? This is why we have so many translations. Now, listen, I'm still not the biggest fan of it. We don't need a gazillion English translations when there's 110 other languages the Bible has not been translated into. Uh, however, we're a blessed country, and, and that's the freedom people have is to translate this Bible, and we as consumers get the opportunity to go through it. But it's important for me to you is that you have an understanding of what translation you need. Um, and so if you came to me and you said, I'm a new Christian, I, I want to know what kind of Bible to, to read, I would probably point you in the direction of a dynamic translation. I want you to just grasp it. I want you to understand it. If you came to me and said, I feel like I need to go deeper in the word, I would then refer you to a formal translation, okay? Um, so that's why we have so many different translations of the Bible. And that's the cost that, we had, that was paid to get it to us. All right, <clears throat> the second question. This one's uh, pretty deep. Um, how do I help someone understand their own salvation? They believe in God, but they are unsure where they would go if they died because of their lifestyle. They believe that Jesus died for them, but they are also content with consequences of not living for him. And so that's a pretty deep question. It really covers a lot of different areas. It covers the afterlife. It covers the doctrine that we as Southern Baptists believe in called eternal security. And, and, it, and it goes off to other things. So I, I just kind of want to break it down in, in different segments. One is that um, how do we help someone understand their own salvation? Um, Paul writes to the church of Philippi. He says, therefore, my beloved, in chapter 2, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own soul salvation, or work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We all grew up in church here in that, that verse, right? And for many of us, it was always told to us as um, kind of punishment for the actions that we have, right? Somebody would see us do something that they thought was questionable, and they go, you need to work out your salvation, that wasn't at all what Paul was trying to say. Let's clarify that first. Paul was actually trying to encourage the church in Philippi in his absence to continue to strive towards obedience. Right? Because in that time, Christianity was new. People didn't understand what it meant to live life. They didn't have the four gospels that they could go to. They only knew about Jesus through word of mouth. Now, Paul was one of the ones who would tell the story of Jesus, but... Nobody really knew him like we know him through his revelation through the word. And so Paul wanted to encourage them. And so Paul's reminding the church that salvation is a continuous thing that requires our work. 
Salvation is not a prayer at the altar. Salvation is a process that's completed in eternity. All right? Salvation isn't this prayer that I say at a thing. That has nothing to do with what we consider salvation to be. It's, it's part of the process, but it's not the completion of it. We actually find that salvation is completed only when we step into eternity. And so it's a process that we live every single day. And so every day we're all working on our salvation. So we, we get this sense that we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's twofold. First, the Greek word rendered here, work out, means to continuously work, to bring something to completion or fruition. Okay, so work out your own salvation. That means to continually work, keep, keep striving towards that. And we do this by actively pursuing obedience in the process of sanctification, which Paul explains further in the next chapter of Philippians. He describes himself as straining and pressing on toward the goal of Christ's likeness. So when you know what it means to work, it means to continue to strive in obedience towards God. So that's what it means. Trembling, he experiences, is the attitude Christians are to have in pursuing this goal, a healthy fear of offending God through disobedience and in awe and respect of his majesty and holiness. So I strive every single day to be in obedience to the commands that God has given me. That's me working on my salvation. I do it with fear and trembling because I'm so afraid that I'm going to offend a holy, righteous God. And that brings fear to me because he can't look at unrighteousness in, in his presence. And so Paul is saying, work out your salvation every day. Continuously strive in obedience to God. And don't just do it out of pride. You do it out of fear. Because you do it because you don't want to offend a righteous God. And so that's what Paul is telling the church there. Trembling also references the shaken due to weakness. But it's in this weakness of a higher purpose that brings us closer to a state of dependency upon God. And so in our weakness, we realize that God is the one who strengthens us. We understand our salvation through obedience to the one who saved us. And in our obedience, we see a greater need for someone to save us from, our deplorable, from the deplorable person we are. The closer I get to God, the more I realize how wretched of a person I am. And it makes me shake in fear that such a holy God would come into communication with such a wretched person. So the more I work, the more I see how awful I am. The more I see how awful I am, the more thankful I am that God still loves me. That he loves me so much that he sent his son to forge this relationship with me that even though I am unrighteous, I became righteousness because of what his son did for me. Now, so when it comes to, so that's the first part of it. So, so how do we know, how do we understand our salvation? We work on it every single day and we strive towards it and we realize in working towards it in the sphere of the holy God that we aren't perfect. We need to be obedient to God because he has greater plans for us. And so then it comes to the second part. Essentially, how do we know that we're saved? Um, like I said, we call this eternal security or the certainty of the afterlife. Uh, we look to scripture. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. A Christian is not simply an improved version of a person. A Christian is an entirely new creature. Okay? I don't come to the altar and God goes, all right, I'm going to spit shine you. You're going to go back out. He radically changes me to a new creation because my old creation was filled with this disposition to sin. And he goes, I, I can't put you back the way you were because you'll continue to be down here when I need you to work for me. And so he makes us into a new, create, uh, new uh, creature. 
a new creature uh, that's in Christ. And so for a Christian to lose salvation, the new creation would have to be destroyed. So essentially, God would have to switch us back out with the old person we were, right? It'd be like putting a new engine in your car and go, you know what, I think I like the old engine. Okay, we're just going to put that right back in. God doesn't do that. He doesn't go, I'm going to make you new and then go, but if you act up, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to turn you back to the old person. That's not how it works. We also read in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, For you know that it is not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The word redeem refers to a purchase being made and a price being paid. We were purchased at the cost of Christ's death. This is what we just celebrated with Easter. Is that Christ died for us so he could buy us back to him. And in that purchase, uh, in that purchase, to say that a Christian could lose his salvation, God himself would have to revoke the purchase of the individual for whom he paid his, the precious blood of Christ with. And so how can... Would Christ want to then say, I redeemed you, but you know what? I'm taking that back. I, I don't want to do that any longer. And so we, con we commonly have two objections to this belief. And one is that a Christian cannot lose their salvation um, concerning these, uh, these two issues. What about a Christian who lives a sinful life, an unrepentant lifestyle, right? Can they not, or do they, does God still honor that? And the second kind of objection that we have to that belief is, what about a Christian who reject the faith and deny Christ? So the problem with both of these objections is the assumption that everyone who calls himself a Christian has actually been born again, right? So I can stand up here today and tell you guys, I am the most amazing basketball player you've ever seen. Now that is a factual statement, but I'm saying I could label myself anything I want to label myself. Isn't that right, Lisa? I can label myself anything I want to label myself without any objection, right? I can come up here and tell you guys anything I want to label myself. But the truth is, if I wasn't the greatest basketball player you ever met, it would show itself when I step out on the court. And the same is true. So many people go around and they label themselves Christian. But we're told to know a person and their lifestyle by the fruit that they bear. And that fruit is then laid out to us in Galatians where Paul says, uh, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, long-suffering, mercy, and, and probably one or two more that I missed. But, but those are the fruit of the Spirit. So you can tell me all day long you're a Christian, but if the fruit that comes out of you is not that of a Christian, that is a lifestyle label that you put on yourself. It isn't one of a transformed life that God has came in and radically created into a new creature. 1 John 3.6 declares that a true Christian will not live in a state of continual, unrepentant sin. 1 John 2.19 also says that anyone who departs the faith is actually demonstrating that they were never even truly a Christian. So they may have been religious, they may have put on a good show, but they were never born again by the power of God. When someone has truly been saved, they live in a manner as such. And so to say that you do not care about living for Jesus would bring into question if you ever truly were transformed, right? Because transformation makes you care about the very thing that you're claiming to not care about any longer. It'd be like standing up and saying, I'm married to that woman over there. And they'll go, oh yeah, well, do you love her? No, I don't love her. 
Okay, that's one of the binding principles of marriage. Well, um, did y'all have a ceremony where, well, no, I mean, we didn't have a ceremony, but I mean, I'm telling you, I love her and I'm married to her. They'd be like, that marriage isn't valid. There's no fruit from it that shows me that you two are married. And if you come to me and you say, I'm unrepentant, I, I don't care about the consequences of living in disobedience, then I will tell you that what you're displaying is someone who has never really been transformed by the power of God. You know, to say that you believe in God and His power means absolutely nothing if you don't surrender to God and His power. James says in 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So we can believe all day long that God is God. We can say it all day long to label our lifestyle. But if there hasn't been this new creation with the old person, then there's no way that we have ever experienced salvation. And so that would be my answer to that question. Believing is half the process. The other is surrender. Uh, question number three. What does Proverbs 10.22 mean when it says he adds no sorrow? So if you want to turn there, Proverbs 10.22. If not, I will read it. The author of this proverb, we know to be Solomon. And as you're flipping there, I'll read it because we're going to stay there. Uh, Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And so the question was, what does it mean when it said he adds no sorrow to it? So if you're at Proverbs 10, you'll notice kind of a theme throughout that whole chapter. Um, this verse on the surface seems to say that God makes us rich, and he doesn't add sorrow to our wealth. Uh, and that can be very confusing. But when we read this chapter, is Solomon sharing his wisdom in a comparative way? All right, so if you look at the two verses above it, verses 20 and 21, he says, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die uh, for lack of sense. And so you see there's a comparative thing there. He's talking about the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous and the unrighteous. It continues even after verse number 22 and 23 and 24. Um, he says, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. So Solomon is doing a comparative statement the whole way through this whole chapter. If you read it from the beginning to the end, he's comparing two things throughout. It's the way he, he wrote this. And so what Solomon is saying in this verse when he says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. What Solomon is saying is that wealth is obtained from God, and is not attached with sorrow like a thief or a dishonest person. So basically when God blesses us, there's a freedom from guilt as opposed to us serving ourselves. Does that make sense to you? And so when God blesses us, and wealth here isn't necessarily talking financially, when God blesses us, there is no guilt attached to it. God blesses us freely from the character of who he is. When we obtain blessings through activity contrary to God, we always feel guiltful and sorrowful, sorry about it, and so a sorrow about it. And so that's what that means, that when God blesses us, there's no sorrow attached to it. But if we go contrary to God to seek out blessings and wealth and riches, there's always guilt and sorrow attached. Uh, question number four um, is one that <laughs> you've probably heard this before. Uh, where did Cain get his wife? Does that, does that one ever bug you? Let me tell you, when I'm at the prison, if I ever go through confinement with a bunch of bored men who's been there all day, I will get this question at least twice. 
Where did Cain get his wife? And you know what's funny? Is some people really struggle with this because they think it's a contradiction to what the Bible says. God never talks about there being women, so where does he get his wife from? Um, and so it is a struggle. But, but there's a very simple answer. Uh, Cain more than likely married his sister. And you Alabama fans, that sounds like heaven to you, huh? <laughs> Roll time. Cain more than likely married his sister. Amen. Uh, he definitely, though, he definitely married a relative. We, we know that to be for sure, whether it's his sister. Uh, some say it may have been a niece. Some say it may have been grandchild. Uh, whatever the case is, the pickings were pretty slim, you know, so there, there wasn't many options there, okay? Uh, Adam lived, we know this to be true, Adam lived to be 930 years old. Jewish tradition says that he had 33 sons and 23 daughters. And so they all had to marry each other. That's how children were made. And I won't go into the process of how children are made because there are children in here, but that's how it happened. And so this is, uh, understand this though, incest was not outlawed until Leviticus by God because the earth was populated enough to allow marrying outside of the family. Uh, with incest, there's a higher risk of recessive characteristics being dominant, right? If I was to marry someone and have a child, someone within my same DNA structure, that same family structure, if we both carry a recessive uh, characteristic, uh, uh, it would be very dominant in us. There wouldn't be the offsetting of someone who was completely different than me. And that's why if there is incest, um, and there's some communities around here you can go to, Darlington and stuff like that. Is that right? Okay, if you're from Darlington, I'm sorry. But now, if you, were to, if you see uh, this incest stuff, uh, that's, that's what happens is you have uh, that. Adam and Eve did not have any genetic defects because God created them from his own hands. Uh, and that enabled them to be the first and uh, the, the first of few generations of descendants to have a far greater, healthier life than we do today. Um, and so Adam and Eve's children had a few, if any, genetic defects. And as a result, it was safe for them to intermarry. So where did Cain get his wife? It was someone within his family, more than likely his sister. Um, we don't know his age. We don't know much about him other than that. All right, the final question um, is one that, that, is, uh, that, that tends to be used uh, really when people want to escape the guilt of, of an afterlife, that, that there is a reality of hell and there is a reality of heaven. This is the question that people tend to ask. What about those who have never heard the gospel? And so this question is used to attack the character of God. Um, they're trying to convey that a loving, just God must break his character by allowing those who have yet to surrender in and thus question in his holiness. And so when people ask this, and if you were ever talked to an atheist, this would be one of the primary questions they would ask you. Or does God not let them in because of their lack of surrender and then they question his love. So I, I want to read something to you. This is Romans uh, 1, 19-20. For what can be shown about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so God preaches to all humanity through the creation that he forged. The sun, when it rises every morning, is a declaration that there is a God. When the moon falls at, and, uh, falls at, sun, at sunset, there's a declaration that there is a power that has created all this. Even though they don't personally have a missionary come and tell them about Jesus, God preaches to them through the nature and the creation of his stuff. 
Now, does that mean that if someone never verbally heard that God loves them and he sent his son to die on a cross for them, they would go to hell just because they didn't accept it? The honest answer is we don't know. Um, but I want to read to you a quote that C.S. Lewis said when people would question this. He said, if you're worried about the people outside, the most unreasonable thing you can do is remain outside yourself. If this is the concern for a person, then it wouldn't be a question that they asked to trip people up. It would be something that they pursued. If I was so concerned about some tribe that I know had never heard about Jesus, it would be my mission to ensure that they heard about Jesus. But we don't know a lot of things. And you know what makes God God? Is that we can't explain Him. If I could explain Him, it would make Him human. But because I can't explain Him, makes Him God. I can't explain every other religious leader in history, but I can't explain God. How does God do this? I don't know. And the great thing is, even though we feel that we have to give an answer, the reality is, sometimes when we just say, I don't know, it speaks to the majesty of God. It speaks to His power, that He's unexplainable, that I can't tell you why He does what He does, but that's okay because I know He does it. It's what we understand as faith. Faith is this substance that, though I don't see God, I see that tree out there and I know God made it. That's my faith confirmed. Faith is, even though I don't know how God's going to redeem a group of people who's never heard about Him, I know that He will because He said everyone will stand accountable for their actions. And so if someone comes to you with that question, go, if you're so concerned, why aren't you pursuing those lost people? If it's tripping you up, then let's talk about it. God, God has revealed himself. We call this natural revelation, right? Divine revelation is when God divinely reveals himself to us. We have the revelation of his scripture, which is which how, he, how he revealed himself to us. Then we have natural revelation. It means that God naturally reveals himself through us, through his created universe. And so if someone is concerned about those things, they will ask it. There was, uh, anyhow, that's enough of the questions. Hey, I want to do it uh, every, every like five or six months. And so if... It's kind of difficult because we had never done it before. And so I know some of you had said, I don't really know what to ask. But uh, over the next several months, if something comes to your mind, if it's urgent, then please ask me. I'm happy to. But if you're like, no, I just want to hear the answer to it, I'm happy to explain it uh, uh, the best I can. And sometimes the answer is, I don't know. I'm wrestling with a question right now. Um, where did you, what, what, I'll, I'll mess your mind up, but where did Jesus go in the three days uh, from his death to his resurrection. So we always have heard in the Apostles' Creed that he went to the captives and preached to them. And we've always, and we read as Peter explained that to us. But then I wrestle with the reality of Jesus' final statements was one, he looked at a man and said, surely this day you'll be with me in paradise. And then his final statement is, Father, into my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we wrestle with questions sometimes, and it's good because it challenges us in our walk and it, and it challenges us in our faith. And so uh, if you ever have a time where you're like, I, don't, I, I need to know right now, then by all means ask me. Uh, if I don't know it, we'll find it together. Or if you're like, no, next time we get together, I think everybody will want to know this, then, then please do. Um, but uh, about your heads with me, let, let's pray. Uh, you know, we, we concluded, uh, we kind of bookend our conversation this morning um, with this question of, how do I know I'm saved? Like, how do I have the certainty of salvation? And then we said, how can a loving God punish people who have never heard about him? That doesn't pertain to you, because you've heard about God. And this morning, 
If you have any questions about the certainty of your salvation, I want to give you the chance to come forward and have that assurance. Right? We used to sing the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And that's true that this morning you can have that blessed assurance that when you walk out this door that Jesus is your personal Savior. There'll be no questions. There'll be no uncertainties. He'll come in and create a new person in you. And you'll leave understanding when I work my own soul salvation out, I have fear and trembling because I see how wretched of a person I am. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to pray for you this morning. And during that prayer, I want to give you an invitation. If you're here and you go, I'm struggling, I don't know what's true and what's not true when it comes to my own salvation, I want you to be able to come forward and let me pray with you and you have that assurance. God, we're so thankful about your grace and your mercy. But God, we're so thankful that in our deplorable state, you still love us. And this morning, God, in the sound of my voice, I know there's some who probably question, did I really surrender to Christ? This morning, God, as you begin to work on their hearts, Lord, I pray that they would begin to sense that assurance of salvation. If there's any questions, God, that you would lead them to the altar this morning, God, you would lead them into a time of prayer, that time of confirmation, that time of assurance. So this morning, if you're here, as everyone's heads are bowed, their eyes are closed, I want to give you that chance to come forward. Let me pray with you. Let me walk with you as you have the assurance that there's a love and Savior who's transformed your life. If that's you, just know that this morning the altar is open, especially for you. We'll give it a couple minutes, and if no one comes, then we'll close out with a, with a, with a final word of prayer.